Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. The series of prophecies that were given to John to give to the seven churches there in Western Asia Minor. Remember that? The end of the first century. I believe the whole book is for them, and I believe there are warnings about the, about the Lord saying, I'm coming to have a, a, a day of discipline with you, which does not refer to his second coming. Uh, but then he gives from chapter 4 to 24 in order to encourage them and build their heart and make them overcomers, he tells them the whole history at the end of time. I do believe that's there. I believe it's very clear. I, I think there's, you know, I, I think it's clearer than we want it to be. <laughs> I think it's remarkably clear. And so we're on our way there. I don't want to spend uh, seven weeks going through seven churches. I, I don't want, I don't, you know, it's not ultimately up to me, but I, I'd, I'm kind of going to try to cover the seven churches today. And, uh, but I want to focus on, on one theme that comes out of each of them, and that is that each is called to be an overcomer. It says, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, every letter concludes with that statement, to him who overcomes, and then Jesus makes a wonderful promise that has to do with, uh, with eternal life. So we're going to look at that understanding of being an overcomer, that we'll also get a, 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 a glimpse at the overall picture of how these letters are put together. Come, Lord, and feed us. We open to your word. We listen for your voice, not mine. And I pray for your strength that you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. What we call the book of Revelation was a series of prophecies which God gave John in order to strengthen seven churches in Western Asia Minor. Chapters 2 and 3 contain specific letters written to these churches. All follow the same structural pattern. Here's the pattern. First, Jesus introduces himself using language which that particular church needed to hear. Each introduction is different. He describes himself differently to each, but of course, the truths he highlights belong to every church of every age. Second, he compliments them for the good things they are doing. Though in the case of two churches, Sardis and Laodicea, he finds nothing positive. Third, he points out the major failings of each church, though in the case of two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, he finds nothing negative. Fourth, he gives them a, a command. In the case of those who were sinning, he commands them to repent. In the case of those who were facing persecution, he commands them to stand firm in their confession even if it means death. And fifth, he gives a promise to those who overcome. These promises, like his introductions, are different ways of describing the glories of eternal life and belong to all of us. Though each of these churches was a real historical congregation with its own situational challenges, the prophetic warnings given to each speak to every generation. Whether facing temptation or persecution, Satan's attacks on our heart or our safety, we are still being challenged by Christ to be overcomers. And his reward to the victorious 
is still the same. Let's have a look at the first letter and just get a feel for how these letters flow. Revelation chapter 2. I am not going to read both chapters. You, you can sigh a breath of relief. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we saw those seven lampstands, are the, that's the menorah uh, that was lighting the tabernacle. And he likens these seven churches to that menorah in the tabernacle and says those seven churches were God's menorah, as it were, in Western Asia Minor, giving the light of God to that land. I know your deeds <clears throat> and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men and put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you've persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Introduction, positive things. You see that? Here are the good things. Now comes the negative. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen, repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and will remove your lampstand out of its place. There's the command. Here's the negative. Here's the command. Remember, repent, and repeat. And then he gives the statement. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I'll tell you what they are. They're immorality and, and idolatry, just like some of the things I'm going to point out later, which I also hate. He who has an ear, here we come to that statement of, at the end, the promise, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You remember the tree of life? That was the one, there were two trees, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. And Adam and Eve, in reaching up and taking the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, said, we'll decide what's right and wrong, and not God. We take the decisions of, of, of right and wrong to ourselves. That is the heart of sin. And then when they did that, they were barred from picking the fruit from the tree of life, which meant immortality. Well, now we know that we're going to get to eat from the tree of life. In fact, at the end of the book, we'll find that the river of life is lined with these trees, and they have 12 different kinds of fruit, which I think of as the fruit of the month club. So he says, if you will overcome, you get to eat freely from this tree of immortality, which, which simply means you, you, will, you will live forever. He goes, as he goes through the letters, there's, there's the same pattern, those same five things that I've shown you go on. With Smyrna, they are about to face tribulation. With Pergamum, uh, there they are, they are, he finds in them that there is immorality, and uh, idolatry. Both Pergamum and Thyatira, same situation. One has a male leader who's encouraging the people to go into immorality and idolatry. He calls that person Balaam. And he, there's a, in, in the second church, there is a female prophetess, and he calls her Jezebel. Uh, you remember Balaam, do you? He was um, that prophet who the the kings of Moab and Midian hired as Israel was coming toward the promised land. They were afraid of them. And they saw this great mass of a couple million people camped out on the plain. And they, they paid him big bucks if he would curse, because he was a real prophet, if he would curse 
this nation. And, and he would go up on the mountain peaks and look over them and open his mouth and bless them each time. And the kings of Midian and Moab got very frustrated. I mean, it's not what they're paying for. And uh, he said, look, I can't help it. I got to say whatever God gives me to say. And so he would look over them and just bless them. And, but Balaam wanted the money that they wanted to pay him. He had greed in his heart. And so here's what he did. I give you the references. You can look these up later. Um, what he did is he said to them, I can't curse Israel, but I can tell you how to get them cursed. I want you to take your, your religious worship, and I want you to camp down near them, and I want you to have your female prostitutes, uh, which is part of their religious service. I want you to have them on display. And the men of Israel will come over, and when they sin, God will judge them. Now imagine that. He told them how to corrupt Israel. And God hates that thing and, and, and what Elam did. And you, it's carried right through. And you see it a number of places in the, in the New Testament, this reference to Balaam. And so when, when, when Jesus says, there's somebody who's a Balaam in your midst. He's somebody who is encouraging the corruption of my people. And, and how, it, how it happened in those, in, here in these churches in Western Asia Minor these people were coming out of Greek religion. Their families were all going to these Greek temples. Aphrodite, Zeus, this kind of thing. And the worship in those things would be the sacrifice of some animal and then they would roast the animal and everybody would eat it and have a big family gathering kind of thing. It was a big ritual. Well, you can imagine if grandma and grandpa are going to temple and you've become a Christian, they want you to go with them. And so these strong family pulls would be there, oh, come on, you know, to come with them and to be part of this. And it's actually stronger than just affection. It's also a superstition that if you're out of the circle, we might get judged. Zeus might get angry if you don't show. I mean, so there's a lot of pressure on these people. So somebody was saying, undoubtedly, look, we all know that there's only one true God, right? I mean, so, so... These aren't real gods anyway, and you can just go and partake in these, these services, and you know in your heart there's only one real one. And Well, yes, there's temple prostitution. See, that was part of their religion. I mean, believe it or not, some guy thought that up, huh? And uh, <laughs> let's go to church. Uh, and they would have these, these uh, prostitutes, and that would be part of their worship service. And so, well, some people just fell into that. But you know, it's all mercy. It's all grace anyway, and... He forgives you, and so it's okay. It's okay. Somebody was luring the people of God into that kind of thing. Now, there are people that say things don't matter anymore. Well, listen to how the Lord feels about it. He says, I, I have verse 14 there of chapter 2. I have a few things against you because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak. Uh, uh, Balak was the... Uh, the uh, Midianite king, I believe, or the Moabite king, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat the things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And he says, I'm showing up with a, with a sword in my mouth, meaning I'm going to speak a word of judgment against you. There over in, in at verse 20, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate a woman, Jezebel. Uh, again, I give you a reference there. You can look her up later. She was also corrupted Israel by bringing in false prophets. 
who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, he said, I gave her time to repent, but she didn't. <clears throat> so here's how much Jesus doesn't care. Uh, he says, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. You stop this, I'm going to blow your hair off. And that's a serious charge. Uh, and then he says, I will kill her with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I, her children with pestilence. Pestilence is contagious disease. You know, if you recall, the church of Corinth had just that happen to them. You remember that? They were misusing the communion. They were getting drunk on the communion wine and neglecting the poor. And Paul says, some of you are sick and some of you are dead as a result of it. The judgment of God had already come on the church of Corinth for such a serious violation. Uh, you say, that doesn't sound like the New Testament. It is. It is. Grace doesn't mean you, we flaunt law, with lawlessness the things of God. So then the church at Sardis, um, they, he, charge, he charges that church with apathy and superficial religion without the Spirit's power. Uh, have we ever seen such a thing? Then there was Laodicea. And Laodicea is a church that's wealthy and filled with materialism. Everybody's spending their time. They're really not that motivated for God. They want to go out on their boat. They, uh, they want their house. They want their weekends. They want their, you know, their, uh, uh, their entertainment and their comfort. And they've lost their zeal for God. I would say that would be a thing that plagues America, wouldn't you? Um, we have so much that God is, uh, we put him in between sports, sports events. And um, that would be the kind of thing they were doing. All right, so the Lord goes through and he, he evaluates these things. Now, I want you to look at the word overcomer. You see it at the end of each of these letters. The, the challenge is I want you to be an overcomer. The definition of the word overcomer in the Greek, the Greek word is the word nikao. You'll recognize it because it's very common. It's used very commonly in America, the word Nike. If you're wearing Nikes, you are wearing nikao. And it means to conquer an adversary to be victorious, to win a battle or a contest. Nike was the god of victory in that pantheon. So Nikao, and the Lord says here, I want you to be victorious. I want you to conquer the adversary. I want you to, be, to win a battle or contest against the enemy. Would you notice that we have, we're in a battle? A lot of Christians don't get this. I mean, they don't see the fact that we are indeed in a battle. Uh, conquering suggests warfare. The book of Revelations pictures a life and death struggle between God and Satan for the hearts of men and women. And God's conquerors, his overcomers, those who nikao, are those whose faith in the cross of Jesus Christ endures to the end. Who have faith to the end. And who remain unswervingly loyal to him even if it costs them their lives. You remember, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. If you're ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father. None of this is new. It's just being applied now, and we're seeing it at work in, in the early church. We're in a war, not a theatrical production. The outcome is not already decided. I, I say that because 
in the American church, there is a pretty strong theme that God is in control of everything. It comes from Calvinism. And you have a lot of people who assume that God has decided the outcome of everything. He is in control of everything. And they comfort themselves with this. Remember, God's in control. In other words, he is pulling levers and he is punching buttons and he's got strings attached to everything so that whatever happens was predetermined to happen. It's not true. It's not true. You don't see, the Bible does not predict, predict, uh, present that kind of picture, but it's strongly put out there that God's controlling everything. What you see here is a battle. I bring it up because these letters are all admonitions. They are all warnings. They are all pleading with the people's will. Speaking to their hearts and saying, choose. That's not predestination. That is not some divine manipulation where you're going to do what you're going to do. Now, you know what people do who are Calvinists with this kind of stuff? They say, well, no, there wasn't any real choice involved, but this is how he, how he does things. It's, in other words, God's playing a game with us, commanding everybody to repent, knowing that he will, whoever he wants to repent will repent, and whoever he doesn't won't. That kind of nonsense. It's baloney. It's absolute baloney. He is genuinely appealing to these churches. The book of Revelation is written to them so they will be strengthened as overcomers. The book is a handbook for overcomers. He says, let me give you a perspective on life. Let me show you how things end. Let me tell you spiritually the forces and powers that are at work on this planet. Who are you going to line up with? S Satan? Lucifer? Or are you going to line up with me? That's the message of this book all the way through it. And so here's the Lord of the church speaking to these churches and he tells them, in five of the cases, repent. Repent and come back to me or else. And then he gives an or else to it, appealing to their will. It's only God's power that's able to defend us. But we must choose to repent when corrected and lay hold of his resources. The warnings in these letters are very different from the doctrine of once saved, always saved, aren't they? If you have a, a Calvinistic study Bible, you have big footnotes in these passages because they're, they're trying to tell you not to believe your lying eyes. As you read it, you can see what it says. In fact, it says some pretty remarkable things like, I will, if you don't, I'll erase your name from the book of life. So you have a huge footnote on that one. Big footnote, don't believe what you just saw. Do not look behind the curtain. Now, let's look at the enemy. Turn to chapter 12. We've seen that there's a battle. Now I want you to see who the enemy is and what his weapons are. And in chapter 12, the Lord describes this uh, very powerfully. And we see the weapons of our enemy. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. When we go through the, these chapters, we'll see there can't, comes a point in time when Satan, who has had access to heaven, and we'll see why in just a minute, is driven out of heaven and personally comes down to planet earth. We're dealing now with a lot of demons. Lucifer is actually accusing you before God right now. But he will personally come down. And boy, when he does, does it get ugly. 
And so it says there was war in heaven and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon and the dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. What does he do? Yeah, that's one of his major tools is to lie to us encouraging us to rebel against God and thus bring death and judgment on ourselves. But he does it through deception. He always tells you, no, that way isn't right. Do this. He leads us into rebellion by deception. The whole world, he deceives the whole world and he was thrown down to earth and his angels, interestingly, this God of ours has actually allowed the angels freedom to choose. And about a third of them, the Lord says, went with Lucifer. Imagine that. And were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for, who is it? The accuser of the brethren. Say that. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God, how often? Isn't that amazing? Day and night, he is constantly there accusing us. So what, let's look at those tools. His, his first tool is deception. He lies and deceives us to lead us into rebellion against God. And then, once we have sinned, he turns instantly around and condemns us. I mean, this is really a nasty deal. He's the one, he puts in our heads and hearts these thoughts. He, he has access to your thought life. There's no question about it. So you'll have thoughts that come through your brains and you think, where did that come from? You know what I mean? It came from hell. You need to understand that because if you assume that everything that goes through your brains comes out of you, you're going to think you're, a, you're insane. And ought to be locked up. Right? No. The enemy's planting these things. One place Paul calls them fiery darts. In other words like the ancient warfare. Where they would put fire on the end of the arrow. And shoot them over the walls. The devil shoots these thoughts into our minds. He does have that access. I think it's one reason he's called the prince of the air. Because it's like he's in the air. And he speaks to our minds and puts these thoughts there. Now, okay, now he's luring you into doing this through deception. And then once you have, he comes, he, he, with you, he condemns you and says, look what kind of person you are. I mean, look who you are. Look at the thoughts that go through you. You're junk. You're sick. He's put them there, but then he you, wants, it's all lies. It's deception. He wants you to buy it and own it. It's you. And then he goes before the father and says, look what Shell did. Look what he did. Look at the thoughts that go through his man, man's mind. He accuses me after tempting me. Because the point of it isn't to get me to do something wrong. The point of it is he wants me judged. He wants me to join him in his destiny. Do you know this? That hell was not made for human beings. No human is supposed to go to hell. It is a holding tank for Lucifer. 
Only if you follow him, if he's your leader, do you end up there with him where you don't belong. And he does it through trapping our minds and deceiving us and condemning us and, and shaming us. See, the more you begin to fail and the more condemned you are and the more he, he, he begins to shame you, after a while you pull away from God and you think, I just not cut out to be a Christian. I mean, I see a lot of nice people, but man, the stuff in me and the struggles I have and my weaknesses, I, I'm just, God's tired of me. He can't possibly want to hear from me anymore. He can't possibly, I mean, how many times can I apologize for this sin? How many times can I repent and then do it again? He's got to be sick of me. Right? Heard it? You heard the voice? This is his most insidious assault, is to separate you from the cross of Jesus Christ. He wants to pry you away from the grace of Jesus Christ. He brings, he tempts you, he lies to you, he then accuses you, and if that doesn't work, he persecutes you. Those are his tools. Now look, now we're going to see the victory. Let's look at how we become overcomers because verse 11 right there is our answer. All right. Now it says, and they, believers, overcame him. How? Because of the blood of the lamb. Say it again. Blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. So, two things, the blood of the Lamb and the fact that we keep confessing Christ even if it means the loss of our lives. Our refusal to, to deny Him and our commitment to the blood of Christ. Let's take those in order. First of all, the blood of the Lamb. They escaped the judgment of Satan by constantly clinging to the blood of the Lamb. I said... I raised the question, how many times will God forgive you? How many times can you confess a thing? What do you do when you fail over and over again, when you're weak and you're struggling and you, and you get sick of yourself and this shame is the devil sitting there telling you what, a, what junk you are and, and, and how, how, how weak you are and stupid you are? How many times can you confess the things to the Lord before he gets it to hear and he's tired of hearing from you? This is a huge question, and I want a good, strong answer in a minute, because I don't have one now, I can tell. You're looking at me like, I'm not committing until he says. <laughs> not open my mouth. How often will he forgive you? How often will he forgive you? How often will he forgive you? Thank you. Listen, that's, that's what people that defeat Satan know. They overcome him. And it says in the Greek, because of, not by, because of the blood of the Lamb. You don't ever let go of the cross. If you sin a thousand times, you confess a thousand times, you turn to him a thousand times, and he forgives you a thousand times. You see, doesn't he get sick of me? No. No, he doesn't. That's, in fact, how you will get delivered. You just keep turning 
to the grace of Jesus Christ. This is not cheap grace. We're not ta- we're, we're talking about sincere people that, that struggle, that have addictions, that have stuff that lays hold of us and we fail or has been, have been raised in such fashions that it's really hard to change our whole way of thinking. There's all sorts of stuff that takes time to process. And you just keep clinging to the cross of Jesus Christ. You just keep coming back and confessing that. And, and even if you don't confess them, it's the, matter, the fact of the matter that you keep trusting that Christ died for your sins. That is your righteousness. Do you understand? No matter how much he condemned them, no matter how much he assaulted them day and night, they clung to the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you cling to the blood of Jesus Christ? Is that your foundation? How many times times are you going to sin and still come to him? Over and over. Don't you ever stop coming to the Lord for his mercy. Do you understand? I don't care how much, how weak, how much failure, you just keep coming to him. You keep giving him, Jesus, I give it to you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying for me. You cling to Christ right to the end. Secondly, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and they also overcame him by the word of their testimony. They confessed Christ even when faced with death. Now, how can you do that? You say, well, wait a minute, I feel weak. How can I, you know, if somebody was was persecuting me to that degree, I don't know what I would do. How would I be strong enough? I'm going to show you how. Paul really describes it so beautifully. We'll let him tell us. Romans chapter 8. Verse 31. He's describing the same two things. He's describing condemnation and persecution. The same two issues are what Paul deals with in this finale to chapter 8. He says to begin with, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? But he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Paul's statement there is, if God was willing to give his son, allowing him to become a man, allowing him to be just brutally murdered in the most horrible way, Allowing all of hell's wrath to fall on him. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Allowing his own judgment, the the fury of God against the sin of the world, of every human, every person, to fall on Jesus Christ in that moment. He would do that to his own son. He said, if he loves you like that, if he has given you his son, what wouldn't he give you? What love would we, he withhold from you? And the answer is absolutely nothing. Now, let's see what he, how he applies it. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? If you're in Christ, you're the elect. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies 
Who's the one who condemns? Well, we know. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God doing what? Interceding for you. So there's, we've, we've seen that, the, that Satan actually has access to the, to, to before God to accuse you. And he is doing so now and will up to some point in time when he's cast out of heaven. He is accusing you day and night. So every time Steve Shell does something stupid, he says, there he is again. You know, the guy. And the father looks at his son and Jesus says, he's mine. And that's the end of it. Over and over again, there is no end to the grace of God. He intercedes for me constantly before the throne of grace. Who will now, verse 35 and following, he speaks of persecution. We've just talked about condemnation. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. Now he's going to talk about persecution by the word of their testimony. Who will separate us from what? From the love of Christ. Okay, something about the love of Christ is going to strengthen me and be with me in persecution. Because nothing can take that away from me. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword see all the things they do. Those are referring to the assaults on you, the, 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 the adversity because you're a Christian. Just that is, as it is written. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. He quotes from Psalm 44. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, now listen, mine says we overwhelmingly conquered. Does yours say something like that? You know what the root word is? Nikao. Only Paul has put a prefix on it. It's very unusual use of the word. There are other examples, but it's very unusual. Paul put a prefix. The Greek, Greek, Greek prefix is huper. We'd say hyper. Not meaning nervous. Hyper victorious. You see it? It's all one word. We are hyper Victorious. Mine says more than conquerors. We are ooh conquerors. <laughs> we're not. We're not just surviving. We're really. We're whopping the daylights out of this thing, and we're 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 thriving in it. It's that kind of environment. Hyper conquerors. In all these things, we are hyper conquerors. Through him who loved us. Through him. For I am convinced. And now he just covers the broad range of everything spiritual or physical that, that could assault us in persecution. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, not Lucifer, not his demonic hosts, nor things present, nor things to come, nor it's not, 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 never in the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can I stand when persecution, famine, and nakedness, peril, and sword come against me? When I have my life at stake, when someone says, deny him or die, how do I handle that? What's going to keep me? 
I mean, what's going to keep me from cowering and, 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 and weak? The love of God. He's got his big arms around me. And the more difficulty there is, the more grace I have. You know, Corey Tenboom um, tells the story. She was there in Nazi in Holland in the, with the Nazi occupation and ended up in concentration camp. You know her story, I trust. It's a wonderful one if you want to read The Hiding Place. But she, she, she began to worry about this and she said to her father, um, he was a watchmaker there, and she said, I don't know what will happen when the Nazis come. Will I have the courage or will I be afraid and cave in? And he said, Corey, he said, when we get on the train, he said, when do I give you the ticket? Do I give it to you beforehand or as we're about to get on the train? She says, well, you give it to me when we're about to get on. And he said, and the Lord will give you the grace when you need it. And then indeed she was arrested. Her sister died in, in the concentration camp with the Nazis. And, uh, and then she just tells of the grace of God that was with her. People, you have strength you know not of. You have peace that you don't know where it'll come from. You have courage that you don't even know you have because the Spirit of the Lord is with you. And when that moment comes, when difficulty and adversity comes, when a persecution comes, an assault comes against us, those big arms just get tighter. If he would not withhold his son from you, if he would love you like that, what would he withhold from you? Nothing will separate you from the love of God. He will just grip you tighter when we need it. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. No condemnation that hell could swing. No, no, they could, nothing could drive them away from clinging to the cross, from constantly trusting the blood of Christ, from just letting him wash their sins over and over and over again. And they, they came in in the robes of righteousness. In fact, you see, we'll see pictures of them in these beautiful robes that have been washed white in blood. Nothing could take them away from the blood of Christ but nothing could cause them to deny their Lord, for the love of Jesus Christ never leaves us. In fact, becomes all the stronger in the moments when we need him. We're not going to fail him. We're not going to deny him. Many of you have been under assault and persecution now. You know what it is. And you know there's a grace there and a peace there. You know the Lord helps you and counsels you and talks to you. You know he loves you through it. Shows you ways to go, things to do. He's with you every moment. In fact, the, the more trouble you're in, the closer he is. And indeed, he will be. And we will overcome Lucifer. We will overcome his hosts of hell. We will be triumphant because of the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.